0: Uh, a great filmmaker made his home in my hometown of Ithaca, New York. His name is Rod Serling. Uh, if you're a TV buff, you may be familiar with some of his older TV series, The, the Twilight Zone, uh, The Outer Limits. They were always uh, quirky and uh, suspenseful. Uh, one of the episodes that he created was of a very wealthy, arrogant woman who had lost her eyesight. Uh, She in her wealth and power and arrogance had somehow persuaded a a poor man on the street to sell her his eyes. And she had found a surgeon who had uh, uh, developed an experimental surgery that would allow him to transplant those eyes into her face and give her sight even briefly. And so the, the surgeon is there. He performs the surgery and her eyes are wrapped. Uh, he does it in the evening so that uh, the, the the unwrapping would be gentle on her eyes. And she unwraps her eyes with great eagerness. And at that very moment, a blackout, an electrical blackout occurs across all the eastern coast. And there is nothing for her to see. And in her rage... Uh, she yells and she screams. She has spent all of this money and her moment of sight is being wasted. And in her exhaustion, she falls asleep. She finally wakes up as the sun is breaking through the windows. And she looks into the sun and is immediately plunged back into blindness. In our story today, that Jesus heals a man, not just for a few moments, But for the rest of his earthly life, he has given sight, a great, a marvelous gift of God's mercy and kindness to him. As we look at this text today, my outline is is very simple. Uh, Jesus sees we are blind and God is glorified. Jesus sees we are blind. God is glorified. The text begins with a line that we almost rush right past. We think well, it's just a, a detail that's not very significant. The text begins as he went along, he saw a man born blind. Now, Jesus is walking down a, a busy street. Uh, beggars would be in places of great commerce where people come. So they would have, collect money. And so there were the, the street vendors yelling out, come buy my bread, you know, come buy my fabric, come buy my fish. Uh, there were people traveling, bustling back and forth. And as Jesus is walking down with his disciples, he sees, he sees this man. The, the man is not lost to Jesus' attention. And not only does Jesus see him, just simply really apprehend him, with his eyes, but he knows him. He knows his story. He knows that this man is here because from birth, he has been born blind. And I I want to suggest to you that this beginning of this story is, is so powerful for us. A reminder of the character of our savior a reminder of the one who loves us most, who loves us more than anyone else in the whole world. Our Jesus sees us. He sees you. And you are not lost. We live in very busy times. We live in in days when we, we spend our lives with our thumbs twirling on our devices and we spend our lives before screens we spend our lives detached and in the busyness and in the hurry of, of our lives, in the in the concerns that we have. And there are concerns that, that surround us and press on us. It is easy for us to think, where is God? Does he even know that I exist? Some of you here have struggled with Deep trouble within you, uh, depression, uh, minds that that are that are troubled you. Some of you, there are enough people here that I can say this with confidence. Some of you have thought about harming yourself. About taking your life. Some of you have cut yourself. And I want to say to you. Some of you are experiencing great loss. I know that your family has experienced the death of someone you loved this weekend. And there's no way to experience the evil of death without feeling a loss, without feeling alone, even in the midst of the love of the community. And I want to say to you that the one who loves you most sees you. And it's not just an observation from afar. It is his drawing close. It is the way of our God always from the beginning to draw near to us. Even in the moment when sin first entered the world, Adam and Eve are, are huddling. They're, they're covering themselves with these leaves. And our God comes to them. He pursues them. Where are you? Oh, he knows. But he comes after them. He sees them. I think, too, in the Gospels of another person who wanted to see Jesus. Remember the story of Zacchaeus? And you may have sung Zacchaeus was a wee little man. A wee little man was he. (laughs) He climbed up in a sycamore tree. He wanted the Lord to see. But, of course, it wasn't Zacchaeus that saw Jesus. It was Jesus that saw him. And Jesus looked up into the tree and he said, I know you, Zacchaeus. Just like this man, I know your story. I know who you are. Let's go have lunch. We need to talk. And they do. And Zacchaeus' life was transformed. I think also in Genesis chapter 16, Genesis 12 begins the the narrative of redemption. We get the first 11 chapters, which give us the kind of panoramic background of of all that really will transpire in human history. But Genesis 12 begins, there was a man named Abraham and God came to him and called him and cut covenant with him and made great promises to him of which we are the beneficiaries. But of course, the promise was that a son was coming. Uh, yes, Isaac was coming, the promise was far greater than that. But I uh, Abraham, as, as you know, if you know the story, Got impatient. Um, you know, he and Sarah were no spring chickens. And so uh, how is this going to happen? And they really want to, they try to figure it out and they go, well, let's try this, this cultural convention. I'll, we'll have a child through my concubine, Hagar. And that's probably how God's going to get this, this promise fulfilled. That's how he's going to get the job done. And Sarah agrees. And then Hagar gets pregnant. And Sarah is enraged, she is bitter. And she throws Hagar, pregnant Hagar out of the tent, literally out into the desert. Now you live here and you know what the desert looks like. And you know, once you get beyond Glendale or Peoria, however it is, it gets uninhabitable very fast. And that's where Hagar is sitting, not under a cigar or cactus, but on a rock somewhere. And she prays. And for the first time in all of scripture, she names in worship, she names God. She prays to Elroy. She said, you are the God who sees. You see me here in the desert. You see me here on this rock. You see me here pregnant. You see me here abandoned. And I trust you. Your seeing is not just observation, but it is all of the heart of your compassion and your character. The confession that you read er earlier, the New City Catechism, uh, that's a good summary of historic biblical doctrine. We use it in our church as well. Uh, But it draws from the Heidelberg Catechism, particularly at the beginning, the first question. What is your only hope, comfort and hope in this life?
1: You know the answer. That I am not alone. But I belong.
0: Oh, how many of us cry for belonging. I. Not alone, but I belong to my faithful savior who knows even the hairs that fall from my head.
1: He sees me. So Jesus sees, but secondly, we
0: are blind as, uh, well, I, I did not follow in Romanian. Uh, I did follow from the text, Danny, uh, Ephesians two. And I would say, if you know uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, uh, the great Welsh preacher from almost a hundred years ago, uh, a, a he makes those of us who aspire to be preachers look foolish. Uh, he's a great preacher, but he would thunder from his pulpit, his two favorite words in all of scripture, but God, no matter what you describe is going on in the world, no matter what evil faces us, no matter the, the, the situation in which you find yourself, but God always steps in and is greater than anything that we face. And so, but God,
1: only God can cure the blindness
0: with which each one of us is born. Only God can take the the cataracts from our spiritual eyes that we might see him. This, There are two kinds of seeing going on in our text today, and no doubt you caught it. There is the physical blindness of this man that Jesus heals, but there's also the spiritual blindness of those around him who cannot see who Jesus is, who cannot believe in him or understand who he is or love him. the text is reminding us that there are those among us here today who have yet to have their eyes opened to see Jesus as our Savior. And I I know Danny was reminding you this morning earlier from Ephesians that this is the great call to come and believe and trust in the one who loves you most, the one who has given his life for you that you might see him But there's another aspect of brokenness, of, of blindness here too. Blindness is a byproduct of of living in a fallen world. It's just one of the many ways that we are reminded that the world is not the way it's supposed to be. You know, you've experienced death this this weekend. That is the, the worst of it. Uh, Mircea and I, we have something in common. Um, We've both been through cancer and thanks be to God, we are both cancer free. Um, but, uh, I have, I'm, I happen to be free this weekend, uh, because I'm no longer, uh, I'm now retired, uh, because uh, chemotherapy is, while healing in one respect is not very kind, uh, on the body. My oncologist said to me, uh, I'm giving you poison, but trust me, it's for your good. <laughs> OK, uh, but it has sucked a lot of life out of me and I don't have the energy uh, to serve like I did. But it, it is a reminder yet again, I have scars in my body that the life that we live is not the way it's supposed to be. And, you know, that's true, too, in so many ways uh, of your limitations, of the wounds that you bear upon your heart, of people that have been untrue to you, uh, people that have been unfaithful to you, uh of Business deals where there's been injustice or you've been, you've been treated cruelly in in different ways. Uh, the, the list is endless of the ways that we know that the world is not the way it's supposed to be. And about that character, we must not be blind or indifferent. Because it is when we see the world as it really is, when we see the world as a place that is, that is broken beyond repair, ultimately, That we have the heart of God. That we be able to, to move into the world and live in such a way that we express the compassion of God, the truth of God, the hope that comes through a risen savior. But unless we know that we are broken, we have no need for God. We have no need for the one who sees. We know, have no need for the God who is omnipotent in grace to come and change
1: us.
0: You know, it's, it, it's, there's an interesting aspect of the text here where after the man is healed, he comes back and the neighbors are, are confused. They, you know, he sort of looks like the guy that we have known for a long time. He, he resembles the guy we used to know, but I'm not really sure. When I was going through chemo, I, I lost my hair and I was bald. And, uh, so I, yeah, I got, I got this, you know, that you look familiar, but not quite the same. But I, but I also think too, what's going on here is that the physical change that is happening in this man is not just physical, but there's something internal going on that's beginning to become evident in this man's life. We see it play out at the end of the passage, but When God's grace comes to you, it doesn't leave you unchanged. Now, not all of us have experienced healing like this. But all of us have experienced the deeper healing where God has resurrected us. God has done a Lazarus work in us to bring us to life. And when people who know us meet us as God's grace begins to have its work in us, they, they should say to us, you look familiar. But something's different. Something's not quite the same. And with this man, you
1: would able to say, yes, God has shown his grace to me.
0: He has. And notice how Jesus introduces, how Jesus begins to respond to the disciples question. He says, you know, as long as it is today, while I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. I am the one who is making things visible. I'm the one who is making it possible for you to truly see clearly. And so that you do not remember Mary's the Magnificat she says uh, no longer will people walk in darkness but they will walk in the light of the 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 the, the dawn that has risen in Christ in the Messiah who's coming. So I am the light of the world. Christ, as Peter says, he's the morning star rising in your hearts. He's the sunrise, as Mary says, visiting us from on high. The good news announced to the poor, the blind, the oppressed, the enslaved, as Jesus says in Luke 4. So we need our eyes opened to see Jesus for who he is. We need our eyes opened to see the world for what it is, not to condemn it, but to love it as Jesus loved it and gave himself
1: for it, to see God.
0: And then thirdly, God is glorified. And this actually brings us back to the beginning of our text. The disciples ask this question, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents? So that he was born blind. They're, they're, they're asking, a, uh, they sound like a bunch of engineers. They want to fix this problem. They want to know what went wrong so that, you know, we can we can fix it and it won't happen again. Who sinned? This man? Well, now, if you think about it, they're, what they're asking is, did, did this man sin in the womb? That's kind of a crazy question. Um, we won't explore that, but that's an interesting thought. But he says, who sinned? This man or his parents? Is it his fault that he was born
1: blind? Now,
0: many of you have lived long enough and have known enough about uh, birth and things. You know that, that there can be physical consequences. We have uh, friends who uh, adopted children who came from parents uh, and they, the children had fetal alcohol syndrome. And, oh, they're living with the, the really awful, excruciating impact of that as the children are growing up. Um yeah those children are bearing the effects of what was done to them by their parents that happens but what the disciples are asking this is a kind of judgment is has this man been judged for his sin because of what someone else has done well that's not true because if you go all the way back to the beginning Genesis chapter 3 when sin enters the world God doesn't ask Adam about Eve's sin, and he doesn't ask Eve about Adam's sin. He looks Adam right in the eye and he says, what have you
1: done? Eve, what have you done? They each must respond to the Lord and acknowledge their sin. And so it is with us.
0: It's easy to pass the blame and say, oh, you know, I, I did this, you know, because my parents are unkind to me. I did this because my wife is mean to me. I did this because my boss is cruel.
1: But Jesus says, this is not a problem to be fixed.
0: Now, Jesus does heal him. He does, in a a very important way, fix the the problem. But remember, when we read the Gospels, Jesus does some amazing things in the Gospels, doesn't he? Isn't it extraordinary that the the, the, the kinds of things that he does, I mean, he turns the water to wine. He, you know, and the the party gets better. Uh, He raises the dead. You know, Lazarus, Lazarus, come forth. And here's Lazarus. Unwrap him. Uh, You know, he, Heals the the withered arm, you know, just the list goes on and on and on. But remember what we're seeing in the gospel is Jesus mercy, Jesus extravagant kindness, Jesus omnipotent power within the context of the
1: fallen world. It is a foretaste
0: of what will be true only when he comes again and stands upon the earth and the world made new. As as marvelous as the resurrection of Lazarus is, I can imagine Lazarus stepping out of the grave, looking at Jesus and and saying, thank you, I'm very glad to be back, but I'm not real crazy about having to die all over again.
1: Because he did die. And he will be resurrected as his sisters knew all very well. So Jesus'
0: response to the question is not, not an engineering question. It's not a mechanical question. It's not a question about how do we, how can we manipulate or manage our lives so that these
1: problems don't exist?
0: We're going to talk this afternoon in the seminar about how we live in such, such a way That we anticipate what Christ has promised by his resurrection and the world may do to so live with our labor and our work and our vocations that we are giving people an anticipation of what that world is like.
1: But Jesus says this has happened. That God might be glorified. I I think uh I can speak for Mircha uh
0: I will speak for myself I uh, I can say imperfectly I my cancer has come to me that God might be glorified The things that you suffer and experience come to you not by accident they don't come apart from God's omnipotent control
1: They don't like that they come, but
0: they do come so that God might be glorified. And what does that mean? So that God might be seen in us. That people might look at our lives and we might truly be the body of Christ, the visible presence of Christ in the world, so that when people know us and look at us, they will say, These are people who have the life of God among them. These are people who have been resurrected by the power of our Savior. These are people who are living in the hope of the world made new. These are people who are like
1: the one who has redeemed them. And so the question then for us is, am I
0: willing to embrace the deep brokenness of the world, the things that are not the way they are supposed to be.
1: With a willingness to say, Lord, as with Job, whether you slay me or whether you heal me, I will praise you. I will live for your glory. Your glory is more important than life being the way I think it should be.
0: Now, at the same time, again, Jesus heals the man. And so we too are not powerless to address the things that are wrong in the world. When you encounter injustice, when you encounter those of you who are are in the medical professionals, your physicians, when people come to you, you don't say, oh, I'm sorry, there's nothing I can do. Well, sometimes. But there are times when you say yes, Yes, I, I know what we can do to you. I can improve your vision. I, I can heal your heart. I can
1: all kindnesses, expressions
0: of God's grace, but all happening within this greater commitment, whether, and you know, we, we, do we say to our physicians, whether you're able to heal me or not, I pray, my desire is that God be glorified in my life, that God be seen in my life. I want that more than life itself. And I'm willing to give my life. I'm willing to sacrifice my dignity, my stuff, my possessions. I'm willing to give my status that
1: Christ might be glorified. In our denomination, we have been giving a lot of thought to, uh, public matters like, uh, racial injustice, uh, to, um, violence, domestic violence,
0: and other public violence. And on the one hand, we, we say, It is not our mission as the church to kind of take control and fix all these problems. We're not. God has not called us to be politicians. He has called us to live justly, to walk humbly. To practice, as Jesus teaches us to pray, to practice forgiveness, a costly forgiveness. To so live that
1: people Catch the aroma, catch the, the the savoring foretaste of what the world made new is going to be like. Jesus says, You may know that I am greater than
0: any of these things that will trouble you. I am greater than any of these things. That you think will destroy you or defeat you. But it is not just that I am greater than them. He says, I am at work in the midst of all of these things. And this is hard for us to see. Sometimes it's easier to look back over the the flow of history and you see, ah, I see the the connection. But. But. If I may take just a moment, I want to make a theological distinction for you that I I think is very important. And it does impact, I think, the way we pray about the things that trouble our lives, the brokenness, the things that aren't the way they are supposed to be. The distinction is between God's sovereignty and his providence. They are very closely related, but they are very distinct. In the Westminster Confession of Faith, which which is one of the, the documents that the New City Catechism draws from, in chapter five, the title of the the chapter is Providence, on Providence. But the text underneath it has to, uh, unpacks the idea of God's sovereignty. And so here's the difference. Sovereignty is about power, God's ability to do whatever he chooses to do. And it will always be consistent with his character. As much as we don't understand it, it is never contradictory to his character.
1: But providence is not about power. It is about purpose. It is about why God is executing and exercising his power. When you and I pray,
0: well, let me just confess, when I pray too often, I loved hearing you pray earlier, so you may be much more mature about prayer than I am. But when I pray, I'm often praying for God to, to zap things. You know, I want him to just fix it. Whatever it is, make it go away. You can do that, God. You're great.
1: It's not a problem for you. Just do it. That's praying for God to be sovereign.
0: But am I willing to pray for God's providence? Am I willing to submit myself to God's providence? When I pray for God's sovereignty, typically I'm behind it, behind the prayer. I'm the one really in control because I'm saying, God, I know what you need to do. Here's what you need. You need to take my advice here. Trust me on this. Fix this. Do this. Because then when you do, everything will be fine and I'll be happy.
1: My life will be okay.
0: But that's not how Jesus prays in the garden, is it? Jesus prays in the garden, Lord, please, you have the power to take this from me. He's sweating like drops of blood. He is in such agony saying, God, you you can do this. He's in the greatest possible human anguish that you can, beyond what you can imagine. And it it is at that moment when he says,
1: when he submits to God's providence, and he says, nevertheless, what does he say? May your will be done.
0: And this is what Jesus says we are called to do as we entrust our lives to him with the brokenness, of things, some of which will may be repaired in part, some of which we will endure for the whole of our lives. And yet God promises, I'm at work in all of these things. I am greater than all of these things. And some of you are able to tell the story of how hardship and suffering has brought you close to Jesus. How it has brought you to our savior, how it has caused you to trust in the in the in the character of God. And the only path to that was through very hard, sometimes excruciating suffering. We are living between the times we should pray boldly. We should ask God for great things, large petitions to him,
1: bring the hymn writer says.
0: But not to demand, but to pray with confidence and to trust that God is at work in all things, as, your, as the confession says, to accomplish our salvation. Not just individually to bring us to himself, but also collectively, globally, cosmically, to bring the whole world To the end for which he created it. That in the end it will be whole. This will be a place where God comes. He returns. Revelation tells us that he comes down again pursuing us. He comes down to us. Our Savior, our resurrected Lord will one day stand upon the soil of this earth. Curl his toes into the dirt of the world made new. Shalom will cover the earth. Righteousness and justice and peace will fill the earth. All the nations will rejoice and bring the the treasures of of their uh, particular cultures to our God. And so will we ever be with the Lord? Are we willing to keep our hope fixed on that promise? And to pray toward that promise. Again, the Ephesians text that Danny read for us is chapter one is interleaved with this great description of God's saving work. But three times in that opening passage, Paul can't help himself. He says all of this that God is doing. His calling, his redeeming, his forgiving is to the praise of his glorious grace. Some of you bear scars in your lives. On, on your heart, in your body, I have my scars. Our wounds will not keep us from being whole. But they are testimonies of his grace to sustain us. And they are tokens and reminders of the promise that God has made to make all things new. So the story ends. Our chapter ends. The man has been thrown out of the synagogue. He really is thrown out of the city, out of the, he's abandoned. And Jesus finds him. Jesus pursues him again and Jesus asks him the question, do you believe in the son of man? Now, this is a Jewish man. And to ask him this question is to ask him, do you believe in the promise of God that he will send the savior of the world? The one who will make all things new. Do you believe that? Do you believe in that person?
1: And the man says, who is he, sir? that I may believe. And Jesus says, you're looking at him.
0: You are seeing him with your eyes. And the man falls and worships him. And so may we, as our Lord has opened our eyes to see him in his glory in his mercy, in his grace, as we see the promise of all that he has lived and died and ascended to do. May we see him and may we bow before him, my Lord and my God.